You don't think it's a little early to start him on meditation? Hmm. What? Oh, her fourth time. Okay. There's hope. So, it's an honor to be with all of you. Be asked to sit up here. I was trying to figure figure out what to talk about tonight was going through my files. I've been trying to clean them out. And I came across uh, some pages of script from a monologue that I was performing a few years ago. And uh, I thought that maybe this is the right tone. It's a kind of perspective I think we all could use in these, these days, these days of summer here in in America. Um, Anyway, um, I got those pages out and I updated them a bit and uh, I'd like to offer, offer this to you in the hopes of giving you a big perspective on what's going on. And I'll start by just reminding you all that we are together on this rock, this big rock. We are hurling through space at this very moment, spinning around on the Earth's axis at up to a thousand miles an hour, spinning in our orbit around the sun at 66,000 miles an hour. And you don't even have to hold on. Isn't that amazing? There's a great Ojibwe saying, sometimes I go around pitying myself when all the while I'm being carried on great winds across the sky. Yeah, but what are we, what are we doing here? That's the, the question, existentially speaking. What is this life, this universe all about? Ever since we humans grew these big brains, we've been asking ourselves those big questions. And to answer them, we've come up with some pretty interesting stories, like about gods and devils and heavens and hells. And humans have become so arrogant over the centuries because we are a pretty clever species and make really good tools. Uh, But we have become so arrogant, we believe the entire universe was made just for us. Our major religions have come to regard the earth as like a a training planet. You know, you come to burn off some karma, find some answers, 
And then you get to go off to some other place where you truly belong. But those stories are now increasingly dysfunctional because they take our reverence away from this world. And they remove the human from the web of life. Luckily, we're starting to tell ourselves a new story. And the new story says we are intertwined with all and everything. In physics, they talk about entanglement. You know, I wave my hand, the whole universe is involved. In biology, they talk about the story of evolution, which is everybody's biography. And we are related to each other. We're cell brothers and cell sisters. Can you dig it? We've started to tell ourselves this, this new story. And uh, we're getting, we sort of think of it as getting an upgrade of our mythology. And the new story is based on science, so it must be true. I call it the latest, greatest story ever told. And I'd like to offer you a few episodes from that story here tonight. Uh, And I'll start at the very beginning. As Carl Sagan once said, if you're going to make apple pie from scratch, first you have to make a universe. So, in the beginning, say the scientists, there was nothing. And it was good. (laughs) Nothing can ever be wrong with nothing. In the beginning, there wasn't any space, so there was no place to put anything, and it was good. In the beginning, there wasn't any time, nothing ever got done, nobody cared. (laughs) And then suddenly, there was a big bang. But a number of people said, wait a minute, if there had been nothing, what banged? Good question, said the scientist. They went back, did some reconfiguring, decided that there had been something after all. A dot. A singularity. A point smaller than an atom. And so it came to pass that that dot exploded. It happened 13.7 billion years ago today. Happy birthday to you, too. 13.7 billion years ago, that dot exploded, and out of that explosion came the elementary forces and the elementary particles, and they began mixing and morphing and creating billions of galaxies full of suns and planets and the earth and the forests and the mountains and the people and the animals and the Zafus and everything you can know of and name, and it all came out of the explosion of a tiny dot much smaller than an atom. Now, is that more plausible than the idea of a God who created everything in six days? Which is more fantastic? Here's an image for you. A trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, the universe was six feet in diameter. 
Now that's a universe you could get your mind around, you know? <laughs> Take it home, put it in the garage, you know. It. <laughs> the latest estimate is that the universe is something like 10 billion trillion cubic light years large. Approximately. <laughs> and what's out there in all that space? Really interesting lately. The Kepler space probe is finding evidence that there are thousands of planets in our galaxy alone that could support life. And considering all of the galaxies that there are, the latest estimate just a couple (laughs) weeks ago, two trillion galaxies. We're not talking about, you know... uh, solar system, we're not talking, we're we're talking galaxies, two trillion galaxies. Um, What was I, what was I about saying? (laughs) It's just, uh, you know, sometimes the mind just goes, whoop. Um. What's out there, the Kepler space probe is finding all this evidence of planets that could support life. It's starting to look very probable that there's life everywhere out there in the universe, all over the place. I think that's really good news because it takes the burden off of us. We no longer have to carry the entire meaning of the universe on our shoulders. And if... By the way, if we do find uh, life in another galaxy, we'll have to become uh, galaxy-identified. We'll be Milky (laughs) Wayans. The universe that we're living in now, I'd love to read these stories about physics and how things are working and what they're discovering about various processes and phenomena. The universe is really a trickster. The scientists believe that the entire universe is suffused with the gas helium. Helium. So could that mean my voice is actually an octave lower than it sounds to you right now? Could it be that none of us have heard our true voices? And it looks like there's a lot of stuff here in this universe, right? But there's hardly any stuff here at all. Because everything we perceive is made of atoms, and atoms are 99.999% empty space. Maybe you remember back in high school... uh, your physics teacher said you take the nucleus of an atom and blow it up millions of times till it's the size of a pea. The electron going around that nucleus will be the size of a grain of sand and it'll be a half a mile away. There's hardly any matter to matter. So why don't we just kind of fall through the floor, fall through the earth? I think that there's some kind of magic act going on here, you know? And if your body's made of atoms, and atoms are mostly empty space, what is holding your clothes on? (laughs) Not only does the emperor have no clothes, the clothes hardly have any emperor. (laughs) 
As they say in Zen, form is emptiness and emptiness is form. Of course, now that they've broken the atom down much further into three minuscule subatomic particles, quarks, leptons, and gluons. I'm not sure how it works, but I think the gluons hold the quarks and the leptons together. It's the way it sounds anyway. And I thought I was starting to understand matter a little bit when the scientists started talking about antimatter. You know, but you've heard of antimatter. The universe is filled with it. And every time a particle of matter meets a particle of antimatter, they annihilate each other. I think the discovery of antimatter is proof that whoever, whatever created all this in the first place was somewhat ambivalent. <laughs> Particle of matter, it'll be a lot of trouble. Particle of antimatter, what else is there to do? Particle of matter. But the discovery of, the discovery of antimatter has raised important new questions for us humans. Now we not only have to ask, what's the matter? We have to ask, what's the antimatter? <laughs> and more importantly, does it antimatter? <laughs> these, are the, these are the important questions. The physicists uh, are starting to come to the same conclusion that the mystics have held for centuries. And that is that consciousness plays a role in the creation of reality. The Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics says, and I quote, there is no reality in the absence of observation. There is no reality in the absence of observation. So, Let's have a little science experiment right here tonight at Spirit Rock. Everybody look over to this side of the room. Would you please just turn and look behind you? And everybody over here looking over here. Okay, so that should mean the other side of the room has disappeared. <laughs> there is no... Okay, now you can look back. Let's check it out. Either it reassembled itself or one of you was peeking, but <laughs> there, there is a story, maybe apocryphal, that there's a group of uh, Tibetan lamas sitting in a cave somewhere up in the Himalayas holding the world together by paying attention. But really, is there anything here at all? They had a, one of the latest theories is that the entire universe is composed of these minuscule vibrating strings of energy. It's the superstring theory, which also says that there are seven more dimensions to reality that didn't unfold in our universe, which is probably a good thing because we can barely handle four dimensions, you know, height, width, depth, and time. If there were seven more dimensions to reality, think of how much harder it'd be to find your car keys or keep your weight down. I mean, it, 
I think maybe one of those, one of those uh, dimensions is where birds go to die. You know, they have a special entryway and they go, they just fly right in there. And we, we can't see it because it didn't unfold for us. Or one of those dimensions may be full of lost socks. <laughs> but, you know, just thinking about it, we live in, we live in four dimensions. It's a kind of restricted view of, of reality, or at least, you know, I mean, it's, it's our common view, but there may be many other views. Now, the question, the, the big question, sort of at the end of this litany of strange trickster-like events in the universe, is... Um, is there anything here at all? One physicist says, matter is just gravitationally trapped light. Basically, it's all a light show. As the Buddha said, thus shall ye view the world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. It's all a a hallucination we're we're living in. As they say in Zen, and they always have something to say in Zen, (laughs) things are not as they seem, nor are they otherwise. So what's going to happen to our, our universe, our faux universe? The scientists say it is expanding rapidly in all directions, and they expect it to expand forever into nothingness. They call that a cold death, the really big chill. <laughs> However, if there's enough gravity in the universe, or perhaps enough gravitas, then perhaps the expansion will slow down and the universe will begin contracting in a process they call the big crunch. And everything will collapse again back into a singularity. And they call that a heat death. Which do you prefer? The universe is going to get you coming or going. I like the idea we all come back together together again. You know, maybe there'll be another big bang. We'll all be reborn into a a different space-time universe, one with less friction and less troubles. Other cultures have talked about the possibility of multiple universes and hold the the belief in them. Uh, The Dalai Lama was once asked if they had the Big Bang in Tibetan Buddhist cosmology. He said, oh, yes, but bang, bang, bang. Many bangs, many universes. Hindus say their creator deity, Brahma, every time he blinks his eyes shut, a universe is destroyed. Every time he opens his eyes again, another universe is created. You can try it for yourself. It actually works. (laughs) But here we are in this space-time universe, banging away, big banging away. We are still big banging away. Every time you take a step, remove your hand or... 
have a thought, you are using the energy generated by that cosmic explosion. Right now, inside your skull, millions of synapses are firing, we hope. That's the energy of the Big Bang trying to comprehend the Big Bang. We're pieces of the universe wondering about itself. So we get to another part of this new story we're telling. A part of it that's told in the field of biology. The story of evolution. Everybody's biography. And I bet everybody in this room, or almost everybody in this room, believes that the story of evolution is true. But I don't think we really quite get it yet. The story is too new to have really seeped into the corridors of our psyche. Enough to alter our understanding of ourselves. I think maybe we need ceremonies and rituals around evolution. Maybe uh, we could develop some practices that would help us to feel our way into that story. I suggest, for one thing, we could start by chanting the table of basic elements. Hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon. It's kind of mantra quality with that M's and O's and... When we sit and meditate and reflect on our breath and feel our breath, we might occasionally reflect on the fact that with every breath, we are exchanging nutrients with the plant kingdom. And with every breath, we are part of the greater breathing of the whole planet Earth. And we can feel that we are earthlings just uh, touch or rub your upper and lower teeth together a little bit, not too hard, but and feel the hardness of the bone. Our bones are made of calcium, phosphates, silicates, carbon, essentially the clay of earth mysteriously molded into this skeletal shape. Where else could our bodies have come from? Put your hand on your stomach for a moment. Feel the, that great bowl of liquid. 70 to 80% of our body is liquid. And most of that liquid has the chemical consistency of the oceans. Go ahead and lick your upper lip for a moment. Or your wrist. You can taste the ocean. We're not just on the earth. We're of the earth. We're like earth sprouts that gained a lot of mobility We're made of all natural earth ingredients. And we're made out of all the life that came before us. Richard Dawkins, the famous scientist, says, if you had a picture of your great-grandfather 150 million great-grandfathers ago, which we all have, or else we wouldn't be here. We all had one 
150 million year million grandfathers ago. If we had a picture of that great grandfather, it would be a picture of a fish. <laughs> Our ancestors, some of them could swim underwater and were scaly. built out of all the life that came before us. Right now inside your skull is a fully functioning reptilian brain, a fully functioning, functioning mammalian brain, the limbic system, and the neo, a neocortex, neo, neocortex, the new human brain. And there's growing evidence and research about how we use the new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. <laughs> that we're not so much rational animals, we are rationalizing animals. <laughs> and it's very liberating to see ourselves in the story of evolution. We are, if we see ourselves in that story, we're forgiven, actually, for all of our supposed sins and mistakes because we see that we are a baby species. There were millions of generations of dinosaurs, millions of generations of mammals before humans came along. We've had maybe 20,000, 30,000 at the most generations of modern Homo sapiens. We just got these big brains. We don't know how to use them very well yet. They didn't come with a good instruction manual. It's, it's clear, we're a baby species. Humans should not be tried as adults, you know? <laughs> I think one of the great messages of evolution and very pertinent to our, our Dharma practice, you are not your fault. You're not your fault. If we see ourselves in this grand story of evolution, our family increases a million, million fold because we see that we are related to all beings through this miracle molecule of... Uh, <laughs> DNA. I almost... What are those letters again? DNA. <laughs> composed of four chemical compounds, and depending on how they're arranged in these long strings of coded information, the DNA molecule will contribute to the growth of a giant sequoia or an ant or a human being or rose. It's a magic substance that seems to separate life from non-life. Deoxyribonucleic acid, much too cold and clinical a name for this Amazing substance. So I'm trying to create a new acronym. Every time you see or hear the letters DNA, think divine natural abundance. Divine natural abundance. And you may know, maybe not, that 99.9% .9 of your DNA is identical to the DNA of the person sitting next to you. The information for building and maintaining you Constructing and maintaining you is almost exactly the same as the instructions for building and maintaining me and the Dalai Lama and Mitch McConnell and, and <laughs> Oprah and 
uh, the Kardashians. Our, our, our individual differences are just a thin coat of paint over the basic human design. We share over 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees, about 90% with mice, something like 50% with worms, 30% with, are you ready? Yeast. (laughs) Yeast. So if we declare ourselves divine, is not the slime also divine? And if not, where do you draw the line? Who gets a soul? Snails, mushrooms? See, the, the story of evolution doesn't deny our divinity, but it may deny our exclusive divinity. There's a great t-shirt put out by the University of Santa Cruz biology department. It says, you share 25% of your DNA with bananas. Get over yourself. (laughs) Besides, a case could be made that the universe was created for bacteria for single-celled beings. They, they were the first ones here. The first life forms, first living being, appeared on Earth 3.8 billion years ago today. <laughs> they have survived and thrived, and now they are everywhere. There are more individual beings right now, inside your mouth, than all the humans that have ever lived on planet Earth. They have houses, roads, churches in there. (laughs) Whole civilization between your cheeks. There's some speculation that bacteria invented humans as like a moving feedlot, you know? Get room and board and a tour of the neighborhood. One of the secrets to the Bacteria's great success is that they reproduce by just dividing. They don't have to take each other out to dinner. There was a recent, uh, a recent study that said that 80% of your body weight is made up of the weight of other beings. As the famous microbiologist Lynn Margulis says, our concept of the individual is purely arbitrary. Each of us is actually a walking ecosystem. What if they, what if they revolted, you know, all, all the... <laughs> They said, don't take so many showers. Every time we take a shower, we kill millions. <laughs> but we, we are a new kind of animal. I hope you aren't offended by being called an animal. It is the way our eminent scientists classify us. I know a lot of you are in denial. You know, you go to a 
restaurant or supermarket and there's a sign in the window, no animals allowed. People walk right through, you know. <laughs> no animals here. I think we should be proud to be part of this beautifully arrayed kingdom beings. But we are a pretty new animal. Our ancestors came down from the trees about five million years ago. Among them was an ape woman that the scientists have named Lucy, the mother of us all. So we can assume that the father of us all was Ricky. (laughs) Never gets his props, you know. We came down from the tree. We started hanging out on the ground using crude stone tools. Became known as what is now known as Homo habilis or handyman. And handyman started standing upright more often, probably to fix a leaky roof or something. And pretty soon we're standing up all the time. We became what is now known as Homo erectus or upright human. And we're not talking morality here. In fact, soon after we stood up, for obvious reasons, the loincloth was invented. But standing up was a very important moment in our evolution because it's associated with a rapid increase in brain size. Now, you'd think that standing up would cause our feet well instead, but this is the theory. Standing up left our hands free to work more closely with tools, spears and axes and chopsticks, and we needed more brain connections to control the more precise movement of our hands and fingers. So this feedback loop was created. Bigger brains, better hands, better hands, bigger brains. Also, standing up left our arms free to carry our stuff around. So we started migrating around the world. We started migrating out of Africa. Nobody knows exactly why we left. I suspect it was to look for Chinese food. (laughs) At the time, our brains were only half the size they are today, or else we would have figured out how to send out for Chinese food. But we started wandering around the planet. Our brains kept growing, probably because we got caught in an ice age or two. Had to think hard and fast how to stay warm. Would have been simpler just to grow a heavier coat of fur, but we didn't think of it at the time because our brains were too small. So we grew bigger brains and then learned how to make fire and began sitting around that fire and telling stories about ourselves like this one that we're telling right now, the story of evolution. At some point in our wandering around, uh, our brain outgrew our head. So we had to get a brand new skull rounded and dome-shaped here in front. Probably none of you are old enough to remember the old slope head model skull. Some of your, some of your relatives may have still uh, possessed those. We needed a, a bigger uh, skull. We got one and we got a, a brain high speed, fully loaded, raring to go. 40,000 years ago, we're starting to catch up on ourselves now. 40,000 years ago, the Cro-Magnon people appear. And uh, they start having elaborate burial rituals, making masks and jewelry, obviously having begun asking the big questions, like, where did we come from? Where are we going? Who, who are we? Is there an afterlife? If not, can we invent one? And it's my contention that the 
the Cro-Magnon people were the first to display a sense of humor, which they got by watching Neanderthals work with tools. <laughs> they were always dropping them, and they, they never could figure out how to use the pliers, you know? <laughs> Enjoy. Uh, So 10,000 years ago, our really great ancestors, great grandmothers and grandfathers begin living in cities, begin cultivating agriculture. And the last 10,000 years has been a complete revolution in the life of this planet due to the behavior of our species. Now we can fly off the earth. We can see to the edges of the universe. We can see deep inside of matter. We know how things work in nature. Just a couple hundred years ago, in just the last 200 years, we nearly doubled the average human life. You get twice as long now to be yourself. Just less than a hundred years ago, we knew of one galaxy in the universe. And as I said earlier, we now estimate there to be two trillion galaxies containing 30 to 50 billion trillion suns. Let me just say it one more time. 30 to 50 billion trillion suns. Who are we now in that vastness? Has it changed our sense of identity? How might we use the facts like that, discoveries like that, to change our way of life, to make ourselves live more in harmony with the world? It's amazing. We now know that life has gone from a single-celled being to a being with a hundred trillion cells. That's you and me. A hundred trillion cells. Inside each of our cells is a strand of DNA that contains the equivalent of many, many volumes of information. The whole history of life is stitched into, inside of each of us. <coughs> We're walking, talking wonders. I read an estimate that our brain processes 11 million bits of information a second. Of course, we can't be conscious of all of that. We're conscious of just a, a small fraction of our experience. Just a tiny little fraction. And considering the complexity and creativity of us humans, it's hard not to think that there's some purpose, there's some meaning there's some direction to what's going on. The great biologist E.O. Wilson says, to imagine a human being being created through random chance in the universe is like imagining a hurricane blowing through a junkyard and creating a 747. There's something special going on here. And it's really... There's a lot of hope if you see yourself in the story of evolution. First of all, life has survived continents bumping into each other, you know, 
comet collisions, plagues, ice ages, Henry Kissinger. That there's a lot of reason for hope in that in that sense. And just believing, just believing in ourselves. Sometimes, you know, it's easy to get discouraged. When I start getting discouraged, I try to remember. It's taken the universe 13.7 billion years to make me. That should be a cause for some self-esteem, you know. There's time. There's hope. It's a wonderful story, and I think uh, as we learn it, we will find it's not only forgiving, it's liberating. So, I ask you for the sake of our baby species and our species babies to do what you can to see that, the, that this experiment in life and consciousness continues. You know, this little biosphere project that we're all spinning around on. So, we have a little time left, believe it or not. So, if any of you have anything you'd like to add to this uh, history of the universe or questions or corrections, I take corrections. You know, it's really hard to keep up with a lot of this stuff, but it's, I find it so liberating to learn that there are two trillion galaxies. Uh, don't you just find that like... What did what did I do today? It doesn't matter. <laughs> so any 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 uh, questions or comments? You you got it all, huh? Yeah. <laughs> You want me to tell you where your thoughts come from? <laughs> well, there's probably a, uh, a, an answer that includes a place in the brain. But uh, I th in looking at my own mind, I think most of my thoughts come from habit. And that most of them have to do something to do with my survival, something to do with the future or something to do with the past, uh, experiences that I've had that I don't want to repeat, so I go over them, or, and that they really arise out of our, excuse the term, animal instincts, that, you know, we are constantly monitoring the world, and, and we've learned how to do that through this process of making symbols and, uh, you know, out of the information. But again, don't take it personally. You are not your fault. That's, yeah. How could you be your fault if, you know, your great, 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 great grandfather was a fish? There's so many things like that now. If you, like Darwin, 
discovered that we, all, we have this one long bone up here, and then it branches into two bones in the forearm, and then branches into five digits, and that that's exactly the bone structure that you will find in a bird's wing, in a fish's fin, and all in insects, uh, in almost all mammals, that same arrangement uh, in the in the limbs, because we all descended from the same ancestors. We shared ancestors in the past. There's so there's so much of that kind of evidence. Now, how it translates into say a Dharma practice is a real interesting question. One that I've been interested in pursuing for a long time and. I've devised some exercises that I think help do that. Uh, but maybe the next Buddha will, will have the have the just the right thing. The right exercise. Others? find this really fascinating. Um, just in the last couple of weeks, actually, I was doing some research on bacteria because um, uh, I have chronic Lyme disease. And um, there's a man named Stephen Booner. You probably know who he is. Um, and he ascribes to the Gaia theory of the, the world and the fact that, you know, we're all... A single living being. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think about this stuff all the time just because I'm a geek, <laughs> a closet geek. But the way I kind of have been folding it into my meditation practice is just the fact that maybe it goes the opposite direction in that we keep looking out and out and out and out. But in reality, we could be the world, the earth, could be an atom of a larger being, you know. So I just right, right, am right. fascinated by beautiful, that kind of beautiful. perspective. Yeah. It's like uh, with every breath, you are a cell in the greater breathing of the planet, which you are. And, you know, on the nighttime side of the planet, uh, there's more CO2 produced. And on the light side, more oxygen produced. The earth is breathing every day, taking giant breaths. If you're quiet, you can actually hear it. wanted to ask a question? No? You were the one with the synapses that maybe were, maybe were and weren't firing? No. <laughs> well, if not, there are no more. We'll just close with a little two or three minute Loving kindness, just uh, relaxing, feeling your breath, feeling your heart. Feeling yourself part of a great experiment part of a great undertaking.
May all beings be at ease. May all beings live with wonder. May all beings be free. Thank you all for being here tonight. It was a delight to be with you. Go, go well. See you on the path. Can you turn it on one, one second? Uh, by the way, let me just say, if, if you want, uh, I, I did a performance of, a lot of this material was in a performance I was doing a few years ago. It's on a DVD called, what's it called, Rose? Huh? How to Be an Earthling. And it's available on Amazon and various places. And in the, in the library. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.